Welcome to Tavern Inn, y'all, a weekly podcast about the stories we tell while on pilgrimage as queer Catholics. I'm Jacob Flores, and um, come this weekend, it will be my one-year anniversary of being a baptized Catholic. Feeling blessed. Feeling blessed. Never stressed. (laughs) That's so not true. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? And I'm his husband, Patrick Flores, and despite the anxiety of job insecurity, uh, honestly, I'm starting to kind of love sheltering at home. Like, when I'm not flying, I just get to drink coffee, read a little book, work on Vine and Fig some, and honestly, the biggest decision that I have to make is whether or not 3 p.m. is too early to drink whiskey. I can see the way you're looking at me. Don't judge me. That's it's still Easter. damned lie. What's the lie? Because I work from home full-time. Correct. And I will gravitate towards a bottle of whiskey or whiskey or wine and I'll just look at you and you tell me no and it's four o'clock <laughs> and I started work at seven. Hang on. I said the biggest decision is whether or not I start drinking. <laughs> I can make the decision for you very quickly. But not for yourself. So Jacob, when you were in high school, you left the church that you grew up in, right? I sure did. What was that like? Um I think my entire immediate family left at the same time. It was kind of a collective thing, and it wasn't like a a, a group or family decision that was made, and we were like, oh, yes, this isn't for us. We're leaving. We all just stopped going one day. And I'll be completely honest with you, the, I would say, maybe end of sophomore year through senior year came out, I would say, junior year, right before junior year started, and, and that's to my family my immediate family, and things kind of uh, fell apart in in our household. So I think that was the catalyst to us, like, not going to church anymore. Um, I I believe it was a fear of what the church would think uh, because it's a pretty small community and, you know, things go around with Filipino families. Yeah. Uh, The drama, they love the drama. But, um, yeah, we all just kind of stopped. and Yeah, we're like, we don't need this in our lives. Yeah, I, I mean, my mom for sure was just like, yeah, I'm not dealing with this this right. is not what i want right. um i'm not speaking for your mom but by the way my mom listens to every podcast or every episode hey yanni what's <laughs> up um but yeah we all just kind of stopped and life went on yeah it, it didn't feel like we lost anything so that was nice to to be able to i guess feel affirmed in in our decision by not feeling guilty about it or as if we left something behind that we that was a part of us mm. So now that I opened up uh, some deep dark secrets to you, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. What do we have on the podcast today? I am. Oh, I'm so excited! Today we talked to Rosemary Mahoney. She is the author of my favorite book of all time, *The Singular Pilgrim*. My copy is still held together by duct tape, and I reread it every year. It's a book about Rosemary's struggle with the Catholic faith that she grew up with and how she went on a series of six pilgrimages around the world to try and figure out what it was that these pilgrims had that she sort of lacked faith-wise. It's just an amazing, awesome book. Yeah. The conversation we had with Rosemary was just quite great. It was enlightening. Um, She, what really stuck out to me was she made it a point to remind us that the church, the institutional church, has done so much harm and is still doing a lot of harm. Right. And we as Catholics can't ignore that. Yep. Which I feel like we tend to do. I tend to do at least. Um, and it's something that I need to keep my eye on and and honestly try to do my part in making the change from within. Here, here. Yeah. It's easy to get defensive. 
Um, yeah, anyone who feels like they don't quite fit in with the church or if you've ever struggled with just faith in general, like definitely this is a conversation for you. Rosemary Mahoney was educated at Harvard College and John Hopkins University and has been awarded numerous awards for her writing, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Writers Award, a nomination for the National Book Critics Circle Award, a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Transatlantic Review Award for Fiction, and Harvard's Charles E. Horman Prize for Writing. She lives in Greece, and she's basically my hero. And now here's a story by Rosemary Mahoney. Hey. <laughs> I'm going to admit I haven't read the book yet, Yep. but Patrick made me <laughs> listen to him read chapters before bed. And I've got to say, the Rosemary's ability to be so descriptive mm-hmm. on her journeys is just blew me away. Yeah. So whatever, from the small amount that I've heard, I, I know this is a, a pretty amazing book. I will, over, over the next month, I'm sure I will reread the I'll entire read thing it. to you. I'll just read it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was raised Catholic, and I'm often asked why I'm not a practicing Catholic now. I ask myself that question sometimes, mainly because I, I was very close to my mother, who was an extremely devout Catholic and who I know personally and from my experience and from her experience, that part of what kept my mother alive through a very difficult life full of tragedy was her faith and her devout membership in the Catholic Church. And, you know, I saw that with my own eyes, but I I never was really able to embrace the church the way my mother did. And it, it, my mother was, uh, her parents were both uh, Irish from Ireland. My mother was born in, in Boston and they were obviously being Irish and, you know, being born in the 1880s, they were extremely Catholic. My mother's father, uh, he came from a big family, and like a lot of Irish Catholic families, every family wanted at least one son or one daughter to join the priesthood or to, mm-hmm. to become a nun. And my grandfather's father basically said to him, Michael, you will become a priest. There was no choice about that. He was wow. sent to the seminary in Dublin. Uh, he was extremely well-educated. And he studied uh, for the priesthood, and he came close enough that he was allowed to wear the Roman collar. And uh, just before he was going to be ordained, he decided that this was not for him. He didn't want to do it. And so he left the the priesthood. I think he wanted to marry. I think he liked women. I think he knew he didn't want to be celibate. I just think he felt he wasn't cut out for it. So he sure. left the, the seminary basically without telling anyone. And he bought a ticket uh, on a ship from Dublin to New York. And he just left without telling his father. His mother was dead. He didn't contact his father until some weeks later when he was settled in Boston. He wrote to him and said, "I uh, surprise, <laughs> I left the seminary and I, I'm in Boston now. And the reason he couldn't discuss it with his father was that he knew how disappointed his father would be. And he also knew that this was something, this would be very shameful. Because Mm -hmm. having gone to the seminary, in many people's eyes, that's as good as as being ordained. And when when young men left the seminary seminary at that time, they, they called it going over the wall. 
he escaped and then that was it he was finished so he he chose for himself the way he wanted to live his life but for the rest of his life he felt like a failure he knew he had disappointed his father and uh, he wasn't actually a failed priest but he might as well have been and so I'm telling you this just to explain to you what kind of background my mother had there there even after having left the priesthood and having disappointed you know suffered the rage and the opprobrium of his father my grandfather continued to be a huge supporter of the church very devout very uh, very faithful and you know my mother inherited all of that uh, and as I was born in 1961 Growing up, of course, we were raised Catholic. My there were seven children in my family, and my mother, of course, my mother and father. He was also Irish. They uh, were very adamant that we be raised Catholic and that we understand our religion. And you know, every we had catechism. We went to Catholic mass on Sundays, and I never really had any questions about the Catholic Church. I, I just went on, along with it the way kids do. Until my father died when we were quite young. He committed suicide. Uh, he was 47. I was eight. Hmm. Uh, my parents had seven children in seven years and 10 days. So that's, you can imagine, that's seven kids who are all basically the same age. And now, I'm, I'm one, of, one of six, all, all boys. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. at least we were spread out over about 10 years. So I can't imagine. Right, but uh, that's not much either. <laughs> you know, it's a, well, yeah, so I think, is that Pat speaking or, or Jay? That's right. Yeah, this is Pat. This is Pat. Well, so I think you can understand. I was eight years old. The oldest was 14. And everything changed in our lives then. And by the way, because it was 1969 and because my parents were so extremely Catholic, and they cared very much about being buried in the Catholic cemetery. At that time, I think suicide was a reason for excommunication, which, you know, my mother just didn't want that. She wanted to have a funeral and a Catholic mass and have him buried in the the Catholic cemetery. He was a, a doctor. Uh, at a Catholic hospital in Boston. And so his colleagues, who were also all very Catholic, many of them Irish Catholic, they basically contrived to hide the fact that he had committed suicide. His death certificate didn't say that. It said that he died of cardiac arrest. Uh, I don't, I still don't have... We've never seen the autopsy. I don't know who wrote the death. I do know who wrote the death certificate. He's he is not living now. But so there were people who knew how my father died, who, with my mother, agreed to keep that a secret. I think she felt that as we were too young to really understand why our father would have done this. And I, I understand that. I do think it's a, a mistake to lie to kids. But at any rate, to to try to keep to the point. Up until that time, my mother was a very intellectual Catholic. She was very well educated, and uh, and she was a she was a thinking Catholic. She didn't just follow what she was told. She read a lot of the literature of Christian reflection, Thomas Merton, 
uh, Dorothy Day, uh, Teresa of Avila. She read everything she could about the spirituality of well-known Catholics who had taken the time to explore their, their faith. And when we were young, and my father was still alive, she, there was, of course, a parish church up the, the hill from us. But my mother preferred to bring us to the, there was a Capuchin friary in our town, not too far away. And they had a beautiful little chapel there. And so we used to go to mass every Sunday at the Capuchin friary. And then once my father died, we now we were getting older and i don't know well actually that that friary had to close they, it was a, sort of an estate and they couldn't afford to run it anymore and it was sold so then we began to go to the uh, church in our parish which was a very different experience the priest it was a big congregation and the priest at that time was a particularly fire and brimstone kind of guy and i, I can remember him he used to basically berate the congregation every Sunday and tell us how um, grateful we were and how we didn't appreciate what Christ had done for us and how selfish we were and everything. It seemed to me, my mother didn't like him. She didn't like this, uh, this she didn't like this face of the Catholic Church. And, but it seemed to us as we were getting older, this is, who wants to be a part of this? It all seems so punitive and restrictive and uh, authoritarian, very much against free will and free thought. So at that point, I, I continued to go to mass because my mother wanted me to, and I thought I should, and that, you know, now I was getting to be 13. Uh, when I hit 14, I went to a private Episcopal boarding school in New Hampshire because my mother knew it was a good school and I got a scholarship there. She didn't like the fact that it was Episcopal. She was she really believed in a Catholic education, but it was a I think she felt it was a trade-off. And sure. there wasn't a Catholic mass at that school. And I this is in the book. I had forgotten I put this in the singular pilgrim when we the school was in concord new hampshire and uh there happened to be a carmelite monastery there and my mother said oh rose look this is great we're in luck you it's only a mile two miles from the school a mile and a half from the school every sunday you can walk up there and you can go to a, attend a catholic mass and it'll be a good catholic mass these are really thinking people this is wonderful and so there was nobody else in this school of 500 students who was walking to Catholic Mass on Sunday at the Carmelite Monastery. I was the only person. Right. There were Catholics at the school, and they were Jews. There were, you know, people. There were actually people from all over the world, all faiths. And there was, I think, there was a little van that would take kid, Catholic kids into the church in the center of Concord. But my mother specifically wanted me to go to this Carmelite Monastery, and for a couple of Sundays, I did do that. And then this is a, this is not really a very good reason. It's not very a very uh, persuasive end to my Catholic practice. But there, one Sunday, the mass was early. One Sunday, I got up at the usual hour and walked up to the monastery. And I sat in the chapel, and there was nobody there. It was empty, and I waited, I waited, I waited. Nothing, and and you know. 
because I knew my mother wanted me to do this, I waited half an hour, nothing. Finally, I gave up and I walked back to the campus of the boarding school. What I hadn't realized, it was daylight savings. The clocks had been set back uh, uh, yeah. the night before on a Saturday night. The school didn't turn the clocks back until Sunday nights because they wanted the kids to get an extra hour on a school morning so that we wouldn't really <laughs> they were notice scheming. the change. Yes, well, a little bit. They, we wouldn't notice the change until Monday morning. and But I hadn't realized that, so my clock was still set. I didn't realize that the clocks had changed, basically. And that was the last time I went to Mass on my own. That was it. Oh, I wow. sort of knew I couldn't keep this up. You know, I felt I wanted to fit in at the school. And um, I wasn't really, at that age, I wasn't listening to the Mass. I had too much else on my mind, the way all teenagers do. But that was actually the last time, for not the last time in my life, but the last time for a long time that I went to Mass under my own steam. Yeah, and sure. I didn't tell my mom. I, could, I couldn't tell my mother that for at least another two years, you know. And finally, my mother wasn't the sort of person to fly into a rage if we said we, do, we don't want to do this anymore. But I, I know she was very disappointed by that. But that's, that isn't the only reason. I mean, I, I was young at that point. But then as I began to know more about the Catholic Church, I was more set against it. Did it feel a little bit like um, Catholicism was her project your your it was your mother's faith and you know to a certain extent you know you you of course you grew up with it and you practiced it with her but once it reached a point that it was you were separated from her it did it feel like it was no longer your own well yes uh, the, the notion that it was her project or and actually you know my my father was also very catholic and he went to catholic schools but i I, I think now he was a lector at the Mass at the Capuchin Friary, but I know that he did that because my mother wanted him to. She was okay. much more involved with the church than he was. And, but she, I think what she wanted was that her kids have two parents who were very involved in, in the church. Her personal project, it's a very good way of putting it. It, it was, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a bad project. But at a certain point, we all have to, if one's religion and one's re religious practice is to be genuine, we have to sort of decide that for ourselves. I mean, it's, it's meaningless if one simply continues going to Mass because that's the way one, one was raised. Right. At least I feel that way. So when I began to, I didn't deliberately explore the history of the Catholic Church, just, you know, I had a good education and I thought about it. And I, I also saw things that were happening in the news that disturbed me about the church. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in bashing the Catholic Church. I think I've done that before, even in, in writing. Uh, and I think I said to you, Patrick, in a, an email exchange we had, that even though I'm not a practicing Catholic now, if I were to practice a religion, it would be Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the, just to tell you one more sort of defining story, my mother, when she was getting older, I didn't live near her anymore. I, I was living in Baltimore for a while and then in New York. And one time, I think I was in my 
early 30s. And I had just uh, come back from, I lived in Ireland for a year. I had lived there a couple of times, but I lived in Ireland during the 1991-92. And I wrote a book about, basically about Irish society, but particularly about the lives of women in Ireland. Of course, you, you couldn't write about Ireland in 1991 without writing about the Catholic Church because the sure, Catholic sure. Church influenced absolutely everything in that country and with, in many ways, very detrimental effect. And so in the course of sort of studying life in Ireland and the significant trends, I learned a lot about the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic, the Irish Catholic Church is a very particular case. And I, I, I have to say I was very against the Catholic Church at that time, mainly because of the sort of the obvious things such as uh, no contraception, no divorce, no, no abortion. You know, nobody likes abortion, but the, I do believe there are cases in which a woman should be able to, to decide yeah. about abortion. And at that time, there were, oh, there was a quite a few young women, unmarried, pregnant, who were getting backdoor abortions or who had to leave Ireland to get an abortion in England. Uh, you know, very traumatic experience, even under the best circumstances. Uh, and I think one young woman died uh, getting an illegal abortion and... Uh, and I, the to, Catholic Church's position on abortion has never had an, 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 a whole lot of nuance, but I, I can imagine, especially in early 90s Ireland, there there was certainly not a whole lot of intent to try and understand what was, was going on beyond just, right. this is our position. Right. Yes, and it, it, it also, there was also the, the issue of homosexuality, you know. I mean, there in the history of the Catholic Church, there are, have been many people who have suffered greatly because of the stated policies of the Catholic Church, and I found that very hard to reconcile. So one time I went back to the, my I grew up in uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and my I went to visit my mother. She wanted to go to mass. I said, "Okay, I'll go with you," because she wanted to. And you know, at, when it came time for the to do the offerings, and a basket comes around and you put your money in it. My mother always put in a few dollars. She handed the basket to me, and I passed it on to someone else. She said to, she sort of whispered to me, "You didn't put any, you didn't put any money in." And I said, "No, <laughs> I didn't." And she said, "Well, why?" And I said, "Because I simply cannot support this institution." And at, you know, when the mass was over, we discussed that, and I said to her, "How can I? I don't want to be a member of a church that is so punitive." That has made so many people suffer, and now, and the things that I, the things that I've mentioned, these are just the, the simple, obvious things. There is also the history of the church and the, the Crusades and the Inquisition and the persecution of the Jews, conversion of indigenous people, peoples in South America, forced conversion. The, these things, we, I don't think we need to, need to get into that. We can if you want to, but there is a point to this. I said to my mother all of these things, and she, she just smiled at me. And she said, Rose, the church is only made up of human beings. Human beings are flawed. 
they make mistakes, they are venal, they are selfish, narcissistic. The church is made up of human beings, none of us. We are all trying to be more like Christ. None of us has achieved that. Maybe none of us ever will. But you have to take all of that. You have to take that into consideration. Try to get beyond the mistakes of the human beings and see the good that is in the, in the church. Well, it, it took me a long time to, to do that. Were you able to, in that moment, Rosemary, uh, or maybe not in that particular moment, but in, in general in that time period when you're still um, having these conversations with your mom, were you able to see, I, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit that your mom was pointing out that, um, you know, yeah, A, you know, it, cut them some slack, we're all human. And even though those were, you know, big sustained periods, a lot of what you're talking about, it's not just a, a slip up, but also that there's there's something um, divine and, and supernatural there. It's bigger than just the humans yes. that are, are running the yes. church. Yes, exactly. What was your relationship yes. with that aspect of it beyond just you know the we're all human we all make mistakes did you were you able to connect with that uh, call it supernatural side of of the church's claims well yes yes i mean are you if you're asking me how do i feel about the teachings of christ love i love them i love i love jesus christ but i feel that the church has has gone so far away from that that it's hard to keep it in sight. I mean, the reason I started telling you about my mother is that she had a very difficult life. I, I, I didn't tell you that when she was uh, 32 years old, she was married and had her first two kids and was pregnant with the third one. She got polio in the last polio epidemic. Uh, in 1955 and her one of her legs was completely paralyzed so she was a person with a disability she always walked with a brace on her leg and crutches and her her family had actually been very devastated by polio her older sister died of polio in 19 in the early 1930s and another sister when my mother got polio in the 50s in 55 her sister Betty also got polio at exactly the same time. Betty was paralyzed from the neck down and lived for two years in a, an iron lung, you know, those huge yeah. respirators that, because if, if you, when you're paralyzed from the neck down, you can't breathe. You don't have the muscles in the abdomen that force the air in and out and the lungs, they just don't work. So the machine is doing that for you. Betty was 28 years old when she got polio. Yeah. And so it was not only that my mother's sister had her extreme paralysis, my mother also lost the use of her leg. And, you know, this was an incredibly difficult time for them. I don't know how my grandmother lived through, well, I do know how my grandmother lived through it, through her faith. And my mother also lived through the terrible things that happened to her through her faith, so that when she said to me, try to get beyond the human failings 
in the institution of the Catholic Church, try to see what's really behind that, I could believe her because mm. I saw it in action with her. My mother truly believed in God, truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God and did come because he loved us and gave up his life because he loved us. My mother really believed that. And, you know, she could have given up at any time. She wasn't a depressive person. She kept going. And I know that her faith got her through that. Rosemary, I think that helps me understand uh, something that I, I wanted to ask you about uh, your book, The Singular Pilgrim, which it's it's my favorite book. I, it's, I'm, I'm holding it right now. It's being it's held together by duct tape and there's notes all in the margins from both myself and the folks that I've, you know, shoved it in their face and said, hurry up and read it and don't talk to me again until yeah. you're done, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which it's a book about six pilgrimages that you went through, one to England, one to Lourdes in France, the Camino in Spain, Varanasi, India, the Holy Land and St. Patrick's Purgatory in Ireland. And, in the beginning, you you explain that you went on these pilgrimages in order to, in a certain sense, find faith or at least try to understand better the people who have so much faith that they go on these extreme manifestations of, of their faith in a, in a pilgrimage. And I wanted to ask you, what was it about faith that you wanted so badly that you were willing to, to go on these these sort of long adventures, you know, with these folks to try and understand them, and and not just to to kind of chronicle them as the way like an anthropologist would, but to to actually be there emotionally and, and in a sense spiritually right. with them as well. Is it that sense of what you saw in in your mother and then your your grandmother that it was such a a beautiful, powerful, and obviously positive effect in their life? Is that what you were kind of searching for? Exactly. I think, and I, I, when I began that project and I started writing the book, my stated purpose was to find out why so many people go to such extremes to exercise their faith. And not just now, but people have been doing that for centuries, for millennia. So it was sort of a anthropological curiosity, but I know that deep down, I wanted what they had. I want, you know, I wanted to believe that there was, that there is, I do believe there is something. I I am a very spiritual person. I think I struggled a lot with why do I need to be the member, a member of an institution to do that? Why can't I be spiritual in my own way and not join this club? But I, I, I mean, I was genuinely curious about let me the largest human gathering in the world is a I think it's a Hindu pilgrimage. You know, that's pretty impressive that so many people are moved by religion. That is it's a it is a serious force. Religion and money, you know, two the two most powerful things in most societies. Right. And so I I was very curious about that and I decided that I would do these pilgrimages, and even if I thought it was ridiculous, I would do them all the way. I wouldn't break the rules. I wouldn't skirt the challenge. I would really do it. And what I found in doing it and in talking with scores of people and trying to understand what they were going through, it was 
there were some great revelations for me and I felt the spirituality. So, you know, writing that book was, it was a bit transformative for me. I believe in it. I don't, I don't ridicule anyone else's religion or their religious practices. I, I respect it greatly. I am spiritual, but I'm still not religious. And to, you know, do I believe in God? I wish someone could accurately define what God is. I mean, I think I, I think I know what I feel God is. I think God is the, for me, God is the energy in every living thing that exists. I do think that all living things are connected by the same force. It is a force. It's something, something mysterious, can't be explained. And I do believe in that. And I do believe that there is something beyond this world that we are living in at present. I don't believe that we die and it's just a black dial tone. You know, I do think that something else happens after this. And I am inclined to believe that it's a very good thing. Mm. I'm not, I'm not afraid to die. Now, the interesting thing is, if I can go back to my mother, my mother was afraid to die. And a lot of her very devout Catholic friends were afraid to die. And, you know, I, I used to say to her, why are you afraid to die when you have so much faith in God and in Christ? And yeah. She would say, well, I'm afraid that, I'm, I'll, that I will go to hell or at the very least purgatory. Well, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but that seems to me, a, that is a very primitive I don't want to offend anyone's sensibility or belief, but it seems to me a very primitive concept. And this is a thing. And I have a friend right now, an Italian friend. He's 92, and he's not well. He has been very devout Catholic, very intelligent man. He's a, a professor of constitutional law, and he is extremely depressed because he knows he's going to die. Wow. And he truly believes that he will be judged and that he has not been a good enough person and that he will be judged. And he's terrified. I think this is very sad. This man has lived a brilliant life, has helped a huge number of people, a very honest, upstanding person who's done a lot for the city that he lives in. And now he is terrified to die. And I have said to him, it's the Catholic Church that did, did that to you. Yeah. We've dis we have discussed this. I didn't like to see my mother so afraid of death. Now, you're a practicing Catholic, I, I think. Is that yeah. right, Patrick? Yeah. Uh, how do you explain that? Yeah. I guess I can only say that it's something that I, I gave up a long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. In order to, to progress in, in the church and not have it be something that I needed to leave behind, because certainly I, I felt a, a great sense of not only judgment about my own life as a, a gay man, but also mm -hmm. um, just in the everyday interactions that I had of, of, you know, not giving any money to the homeless guy on the street corner to mm -hmm. the, the arguments, all the, the, the natural things that uh, and mistakes that we make in, in life. Yeah. The person that I I've came into contact with in the, the scriptures and in my own prayer I never got that sense of, of condemnation. I never got that uh -huh. sense of 
you will never overcome this. You will never be better than the mistakes that you've made. Um, mm-hmm. I, I always got the sense that I am, I'm far more than, you know, the best thing that I've, I've, I've done. And I'm far more than the, the worst thing that I've done, that it's, it's mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle and that I can't operate on, on fear alone. Jacob, did you have a, a similar sense? Cause, cause Rosemary, I didn't mention this in the email, but Jacob just became Catholic uh, a year ago at yeah, Easter. Yeah. So oh. he's, he's new to the, the Catholic church. Wow. Um, well, you know, he, that's that's really interesting. I realize as you're talking, Patrick, that the truth is I've been so out of touch with the Catholic Church now that I really don't know. And I suspect, I mean, the Catholic Church would have had to change since the time. I'm almost 60. The Catholic Church would have had to change since the time that I was a teenager and in my 20s. And it, I mean, it, it has to just to stay alive. The, and the, to be honest with you, I don't know in what way it has changed. Now, I do listen occasionally to Pope Francis, and I like what I see. Very interested the other day, he basically said, you know, church leaders have acknowledged that the church has made some terrible mistakes and has have apologized for them. He said something to, to the effect that you cannot force people to believe. You can't force people to be faithful. You can't beat them into spirituality. You can, the only way you can inspire people toward faith is by your example, by the things you do, not by the things you command. And that, to me, that's the best thing I've heard in a long time. Mm. Right. Uh, I think it's true. But uh, Jacob, I, my mother would love you. She loved Catholic converts. <laughs> she really did. <laughs> um, in fact, I- you know, she had a lot of, well, my mother... Just because of the place that we lived in, my mother had a lot of Episcopalian friends, and she loved her friends, but she was constantly teasing them about the the Episcopal Church, and she mm-hmm. would say to them, you know, it's, it's, it's that's just a social club. That's not a real, there's a real religion, and who want, who would want to be the member of a church founded on divorce? You know, and then they would owl, but actually she had a very serious problem with the way that many Episcopalians see the Eucharist only as a symbol, whereas Catholics, well, she believed in transubstantiation. She mm-hmm. actually believed that the Eucharist was the body of Christ. And, you know, Patrick, you asked me if I saw the mystery behind what my mother said about her faith. Yes, I do. And, uh, you know, I don't believe in imaginary creatures, but I think I can understand the belief in transubstantiation. I can almost understand that. But my mother had a very good friend who wasn't Episcopalian and converted to Catholicism. And my mother was so impressed with that. So, Jacob, it's my mother's long gone now. Oh, I hope she's not in purgatory. But uh, <laughs> she would certainly love to know you. You actually, she'd love to know why you converted. Why? Yeah. That, I mean, I'd, I'd love to know that. too. I know. Yeah, I would love to know why you did that in this day and age. So you actually you touched on it a little bit. You mentioned um, how what made most sense to you when someone would, uh, I think you said, stay in the church or still kind of believe in their faith. It, it's the the works that the church is doing, and mm-hmm. uh, another guest of ours. 
um, had mentioned there's two distinctions between the big church and the little church, the uh, what they call the big C and the little C. And what drew me to, um, I guess, being inclined to taking that first step into uh, navigating and exploring what it was about the Catholic Church that I was so enamored with since I was, I would say, in elementary school. Um, w- were you raised in any religion? Yeah, so I was raised um, a non-Unitarian, but it was a, they considered themselves non-denominational, and it was very mm-hmm. fire and brimstone, like you had mentioned. Yeah. Um, the yeah. previous uh, parish priest um, was like. And it was the, so it was St. James Cathedral in Seattle that I became introduced to. Um, yeah. And they did a lot of ecumenical work um, throughout the city, events such as the the, the Orlando shooting in Florida. Um, they teamed up with the Episcopalians um, and they did a, a march against gun violence throughout the city. Um, so it was a two, three mile march um, in some of the busiest areas of uh, Seattle and um, really in, made including it. intentionally going through kind of the gay district, the gay district of, yeah of, of mm-hmm. seattle mm-hmm. making a, a point of of where you know the shooting had taken place yeah a solidarity and, and and a sense of allyship and seeing the events like that be constant and coming from a catholic church that i was raised to fear and hate mm-hmm. made me that much more interested um and so I finally took the the plunge of doing RCIA. Did it for about two years, two and a half years, maybe. I met Patrick. Now, did you, had you known Patrick before you were interested in the Catholic Church? I did not, and that was the kind of oh, interesting, uh, interesting uh, part of our relationship. Yeah, we we met right at about the time Jacob was just starting to to really look at the Catholic Church on his own. So I hadn't introduced mm-hmm. him to the Catholic Church. But right. it was at, just as we were starting to spend time to, together and I was explaining, hey, I've got a long history with the Catholic <laughs> Church, we could have some of those conversations and, and kind of shared experiences. Yeah, coming from a, a, a being born into a church that was so um, punitive and, and, like you said, uh, focused on you know God's wrath and really it had no, it had a, a large absence of, of grace and love. That I mm-hmm. that I see the church, the Catholic Church today, as, mm-hmm. um, and really is what drew me to uh, actually, you know, doing a long process of RCIA and and committing to it. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now with the church. I, and I, I I come from more of a a, a secular background. Most of my friends are 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 non-religious, spiritual but not religious, or just not religious at all. Um, so it was a, a, a shock, um, to many, um, to see that I was actually taking the plunge and, um, and being in Seattle, you know, you have a lot of, um, intellectuals, people who, who tend to stray away from religion. So it was, uh, you know, the, the implication there is that intellectualism and Catholicism don't go together. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think they do. I think they do, and I think for they sure should. I feel that way. So, what your friends? How did they feel about it? Uh, mostly, they were puzzled um, and confused. Yeah. I, I did this very quietly. Uh, I will say, um, even my best friend was um, a little uh, taken off guard um, when I had mentioned that I was actually going through the process, and no one really questioned me or you know pushed back. They just kind of accepted it. 
but I've had some instances where colleagues have pushed back and and really, you know, asked why would you do why would you join a right. church that has done such damage to right. Uh, right. to, you know, gays, women um and continue to do right. so and I and like your mom and, and your mom had mentioned, you know, we're all human. The church is human. Um look right. past try to look past those mistakes. Um mm -hmm. and I feel that if I could look at the church as not a giant institution um, and realize that God is actually working in the small parishes and in those works that those parishes do well, rather than what this right. large in institution that's telling us what, how we should believe. That's what that, now, I think you just hit on the most important thing now in modern Catholicism. You, mentioned the big C and the little C. Mm -hmm. Can you explain exactly what you meant by that? What is the big C? The The big C is the institutional church. So, um, right. So is that what you were just talking about? The big C is the institutional church. The It's the Vatican mm -hmm. and on down. And the little C is the sort of church that you're involved with. Is that On right? the ground, yeah. yeah the parishes yeah. and um, right. all the small ministries so that's, that are happening. That is... I think that's a really important distinction to make because sometimes I see that small C acting that, that there almost seems to be no relationship between the institutional church and the small Catholics who are doing good in their uh, communities. Mm -hmm, right. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't think you can ignore the Vatican. I don't think you can, because it's all it, it's all related. It's all a, a, of a piece. Mm -hmm. But you know what I really would like to. I, I know that you we're talking because you want to know what I think. I'd love to know what you think the future of the Catholic Church is. I oh well that that's a definitely a tough question. I think. Um, like you mentioned, the church does need to change. Um, it needs to adapt with the, the, the times that we're in. I'm really hoping, and I, I, I truly believe that Pope Francis is doing a good job with this, of, mm -hmm. of getting the church back to you know the essentials, the basics, the, the foundations of our faith, um, living out the Gospels and, and keeping it simple. I really hope that that continues, and I hope that's the direction that the church um, continues to move forward towards. Mm -hmm. I guess only time will tell and, and people within the church trying to make those changes. And, and I'll say we, we run a, this ministry uh, called Vine and Fig, which is explicitly for LGBTQ Catholics. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not meant to merely be kind of a, um, like a wayward station for folks who are trying to find their place, their way to a better place, you know, to like, maybe mm -hmm. you grew up in an intense Catholicism and maybe then you can spend some time in vine and fig and then eventually you become a good secular member of society. The, the goal is very much to help any queer Catholics out there to try and hold on if they want to both of, of those pieces of their lives. And there's no way that we would do it if we didn't have some kind of, of hope and faith that the Catholic Church can change. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's not going to change, then there's no point. And I agree we should all leave. Right. Like, there's no point. Right. Um, but right. I think that the foundation is there for change. I think that there's enough, you know, good bones, to use an old expression, that um, 
we can draw upon to say like this is what the, the the catholic church really is it's you can see it still in those small parishes in the the small right. c churches that that we were talking about a minute ago and that it's just a matter of of bringing the the larger sense of the church uh, along with and and helping them to to see and so that's that's what we do here at at vine and fig um and i think that's a Part of the reason why I've always been so so drawn to your work, not only being an extraordinary writer, but also being very free to explore that tension, Rosemary, of feeling that there's goodness there, that there's still something worth not walking away from, um, and and being willing to talk openly about trying to explore that space and, and how it is that you can still be you know, a person that, that respects and maybe even to some extent kind of feels at home within the church. And and I'm curious, maybe just for one final question, Rosemary, Yeah. a lot of LGBTQ Catholics, they, they do lose that sense of kind of childlike wonder that they maybe once had for the church because of its discriminatory policies. And they see everything else that the church has done in the world and its history. And they, it, that comes up up against their own lived experiences and what they're right learning about themselves and that they're not maybe as, as evil and terrible as they've been uh, taught to believe. What advice do you have in regards to kind of surviving doubt in an institution that you once loved? Because I, I can hear it in your voice. You're still able to talk with a lot of affection about the pieces of, of faith and the church that you do still um, well, yes, I, I, mean, I do. I, and I, yeah, and you know, it's, it's it's so difficult. It's because it's the teachings of Jesus Christ. They're so beautiful, right? And they're they're so they make such incredible sense. But unless you unless you really do practice them, unless you study them, unless you keep that in front of you every day, it's very easy to forget what Christianity really is. You know, I am just in recent years. The I don't I want, don't want to continue talking about the negative things. My nephew is gay. And you know, he knew he was gay from a very young age. And my mother, of course, being Irish Catholic, she's she often said it's it's uh, she she we had a lot of homosexual friends. Um, she had homosexual friends, but she could, she simply couldn't accept. She would say, look, you can see just by looking at the human anatomy that it, it is a man and a woman who should be together. Two men should not be together. It's really just a fad. <laughs> she thought it was just a fad. And so my poor nephew, who was her first grandchild, she adored him. You know, I think we all sort of knew that he was gay, although he didn't come out until he was 16. And he very bravely went to my mother and said, Gammy, I have something to tell you. I'm gay. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> and to listen, to her credit, she said, Brendan, I love you no matter who you are or what you are, and you know that. And, 
you know, I'm glad you've told me, but then she simply couldn't help herself. About half an hour later, she said to him, now, Brendan, you do me, <laughs> you poor guy, will you do me a favor? Try, just for me, try thinking straight for a month and see how that feels. <laughs> and then, then the next month, try thinking gay and see how that feels. The poor thing, as if he had not been trying to think straight mm -hmm. all his life. Right. You know, he, he knew he was gay from a very young age. And then, you know, he was 12. He got a sort of phony girlfriend. Kids in his school, they just sensed he was gay. They called him faggot and threw stones at him. He's 40 now. And, you know, he had already suffered a lot about this. Thankfully, he understood where my mother came from. She was getting old. And, you know, he forgave her for that. And then she sort of rightly forgot that he was gay. Not, not that, I mean, he would show up with boyfriends and she understood it, but it, it was not, it wasn't an important thing to her because she was deep down Christian. And it, what, what I was, I wanted to say, and I almost at this point, because this is such a positive conversation, I almost don't want to bring this up, but I think the point I want to make is that they, the teachings of Christ and the good works that that Christians, Catholics can do on the ground are extremely important, but it's so easy to lose sight of them. And the, the most recent example that really disappointed me about the church was the situation with Cardinal Bernard Law in Boston. Yeah, you, you must know all about yeah. him. And the, there was a predominance of priests who were sexually abusing and raping kids in the, in the parishes uh, for years. In fact, two of my brothers went to Boston College High School, that, which was a Jesuit school, sort of a feeder high school for Boston College. And some, several of the most infamous pedophile priests taught at that school when they were there. Uh, that famous guy, Gagan, I don't know if you know who I am. Yeah, yep. Uh, who, who sexually abused over 130 kids, verified. And Bernard Law simply moved these priests, he protected them, he moved them from one parish to the next, knowing what was going on. I think this is criminal. And I think when this came out, it was the Boston Globe who broke this story. When this came out, there were many cardinals who wanted him to be tried. They wanted an investigation and they wanted him to be tried. He, I believe he should be in jail. He's not. He was sent to, actually, I think he's dead now, but he was sent to Rome and he was made the, the head of a very important church in Rome. That I simply couldn't understand. That's the part of the Catholic Church that I think just has to go. Mm -hmm. I, I simply can't accept that. The, the man was a criminal. This is, you know, that, that is a very serious thing. It's a serious thing the Catholic Church is, is, is responsible for in a lot of countries. And we only know now recently who will trust a church that protects this kind of criminality. Yeah. So absolutely. there is a there is a there is a dichotomy here that needs to be bridged. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm grateful for your continued anger and, and, and sense of outrage over that. I think there's a lot there's there's such an instinct for Catholics who want to stay in the, the church and want to see the good in the church to say it, I don't have enough emotional bandwidth for her all all that negative stuff, even the most recent right. ones. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna push past it. I'm gonna you know, I, I okay, I read those news articles and now I'm turning the page. Yeah. And and there's still enough of it going on and still a lack of accountability within the, the, the church that your I think your sense of, of, of outrage is very well placed and, and, and very appreciated. I, so I thank you for bringing it up. The, yeah, well the people on the ground, you know, the people like you who are working in your communities to continue the tradition of good works, to change re, I mean, you are the church. The change really needs to come from the ground upward. There is no church without the congregation. All those men in Rome, they wouldn't have a place if it weren't for the rest of us. Yeah. So I don't know that we've solved anything, but I, I definitely have learned, learned something. Good. Well, Rosemary, we are so incredibly grateful for uh, your time. I'm grateful for the gift that uh, your writing has been to me through the, the years I, I I hope that we'll be able to kind of continue this this conversation at, at some point in in the future because I feel like there's a lot more we could we could ask you and this this has been a, a beautiful conversation. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm very flattered, and I'm flattered that you like the book so much. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I you know I appreciate your interest. Yeah, please tell everyone where they can find your work. Uh, well, right now I'm actually writing um, uh, a memoir. It's the Probably the most I've written. I've published six books about various subjects, and so, so you know, these books are all very different. And right now, I'm actually writing a book about my family, which will include a lot of the things I've just talked about with you. So this is this book is very personal, and I don't exactly know when that will be published. But my books, you know, you can get them, buy them in bookstores. You can order them on Amazon if you like yeah. Amazon. <laughs> These days, now that now that everything is closed, uh, I don't know where you can get them. Well, I hope that uh, when you uh, do complete your the book that your, the autobiography that you're working on, that you'll come back and, and talk with us about it because we'd love to 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 have that conversation. Oh, I'd love to talk about it with you. There's a lot of Irish Catholics in it, and a lot of talk oh. about the church too. So perfect, awesome. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Rosemary. Have a good evening. You can find Rosemary Mahoney's book, The Singular Pilgrim, wherever books are sold, but we highly recommend getting it from a local bookstore who is selling online. Tabardine is a podcast by Vine and Fig, an affirming community and resource for queer Catholics. You can find us on social media at Vine and Fig Co. and on our website at vineandfig.co. That's it for us this week on Tabardine. Thanks for listening, y'all. Tap that like button, that subscribe button, you know. Like and subscribe. Do, 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 do.